Not sure what to expect or how to navigate the interview process? Want to make sure your personal statement hits the mark? AMSA's new program, Applied Match Preparation, or AMP, has been created just for you. Get personalized, one-on-one assistance from a team of experts and get ready to shine during the application process. Visit amsa.org amsa-amp to get started today. As a physician, you won't be able to solve all of your patients' problems. Some of those problems, especially systemic ones, will remain just out of a doctor's reach. Today, we'll learn about how to extend that reach. Welcome to the AMSA AdLib Podcast, where we'll hear from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. Sometimes it seems like medicine isn't enough, that caring for patients goes beyond the scope of your abilities as solitary provider that the problems facing your patients are deeper and more entrenched than medicine can possibly address. That thought can be demoralizing. It may even make you question medicine as a career choice. But you aren't the first one to come to that realization. And today we have some concrete advice for you presented by Dr. Lena Wen at AMSA's convention in February. Dr. Wen is commissioner of health for the city of Baltimore. Her hard-won advice can be scaled to fit any of your projects, from a research presentation or student-run clinic, all the way to the groundbreaking citywide initiatives she has famously led in Baltimore. Here's Dr. Wen. I want to start today with an admission. And that admission is also what brought me to AMSA, but also made me quite disillusioned with medicine and with medical school. So my parents were not that far off when they were like, are you actually going to finish? Um, I took a lot of time off because this one thought troubled me so much that I almost quit medical school multiple times. Here's that thought. I entered medicine, as I suspect that many of you did, because I thought that medicine would be the answer. I thought that healthcare was the answer. I was, I had this uh, I don't know, the rather misguided view that when patients come to me as the physician, that I'm able to help them with whatever problem it is that brought them there, and I won't see them again, or I'll see them, but their problem will be resolved. I mean, that's, that's just my rather simplistic way of, of thinking about it. And to some extent, this is true. I'm an emergency physician, and if somebody came to me and they have a dislocated joint, I mean, I can fix that, right? I can reduce that joint, I can send them on their way, and they'll be fine. Or I can stitch someone up, and they'll be happy, they'll be fine. That's really the minority of our patients, though. I remember very vividly in medical school having this eight-year-old patient who would come to the pediatric ED every week, and we always knew the medical intervention that we would give him, which is we, would, we knew what that was, right? We knew that the medical intervention itself was the inhaler, maybe the steroids, maybe sometimes we did a chest x-ray, like we knew what that was. But then he would come back over and over again because he and his family lived in a house with two vacants nearby. No matter what they did to the house, the vacants still had mold and all other kinds of allergens that were making him sick. They were two blocks away from an incinerator. There were other people all around them who visited the home who smoked. What was I actually doing for that patient than just applying a Band-Aid? That was quite a disillusioning moment, and I think a lot of us also get to the point you hear about burnout. And I think I know why. I mean, there are many reasons for it, but I think one major reason for it is we stop asking questions when we don't think that we have those answers. 
We're afraid to open Pandora's box because we don't think we have those answers. I mean, I'll give you another example of this that I would see in residency, I had this patient, again, someone as an emergency physician, you don't want to recognize your patients, right? If you know them really well, and some of these patients we know so well, I could tell you when is the last time they got a CT scan and what that showed. I mean, that's not good. That's an issue with our system, of course, but, and it's our duty to see these patients, but it still feels bad because we know that we're not doing the right thing by them. But I remember seeing this patient who came in all the time. She was around my age at the time, and she came in all the time seeking assistance for her substance addiction. She got addicted to prescription pills, then she got addicted to heroin, and she knew what she needed for help, which is that she knew she needed addiction treatment. I knew she needed addiction. I mean, nobody would have questioned that. Every nurse, every social worker would have said, you need to get treatment for your addiction because you're coming into the ED every day. But the soonest we could get her an appointment was often three weeks, maybe two months away which, by the way, we would never consider doing for other illnesses, right? Imagine if we said to someone, you're having a heart attack. If you're not dead within three weeks, come back then. <laughs> we don't find that acceptable. And yet, one in 10, only one in 10 people nationwide, according to a recent Surgeon General report, are able to get the treatment that they need if they come in with a substance addiction which again, we don't find acceptable for any other illness, right? We don't say to someone, oh, you have cancer. One in 10 chance that you're going to get chemotherapy. I mean, how much outrage would there be? So it was something that was very upsetting to me, but even more upsetting when one day this lady came in and this time she had overdosed. And she'd overdosed and we knew what we would give her. We would give her naloxone or Narcan, which you heard Kelly talk about. It's an antidote, but it's not going to work if the patient has already stopped breathing, they've already died, and you're not going to be able to resuscitate them, and that's what happened. We looked back at our chart, actually, that day, and we looked at how many times she'd come to the ED. In the previous year, this lady had come to the ED 119 times. 119 times. And every time we turned her away, not because we as emergency physicians were mean or not caring, not because the social workers didn't try to help, but because of that flaw in our system. So how did people get disillusioned and burned out? It's because we see things like that happen. It's because we feel like we don't even want to ask the question because we don't know what answer we would give people. I think it's also when we see patients who come in with heart disease and we know that these patients need a whole variety of things for their help, but we end up giving them a pill because they're telling us that they live in a neighborhood where they have to drive, they, they don't have a car, they have to take three buses to get healthy fruits and vegetables. Or maybe they don't even feel safe going outside, so what's the point of recommending exercise? People talk about choice, but we have to remember that that choice is predicated on privilege. This is AMSA, I love it. <laughs> there is this paradox of health, and I want this paradox of health to be, it, that helped me, I think, reframe um, my thoughts about this disillusionment in medicine. 
this paradox in health we see all across our country, but I'll tell you what I see in Baltimore. By the way, this is my only slide, in case you're like, why, where are these other slides? Um, but nobody has yet to tell me you need to have more slides in your, in your PowerPoint, so if you feel that way, you can tell me later. But um, <laughs> I didn't want people to get worried, like, when are you actually going to start the presentation? But, um, you know, I sometimes, for when I give talks to academic institutions and they really want slides, I show them a series of pictures from Baltimore, pictures of our city separated by neighborhood, and their beautiful color coding and other things that our epidemiologists do. And basically, I realized that I almost didn't need, actually, I don't need a legend, a key, to those maps. Because that those same areas that have low life expectancy, also have high infant mortality, also have high food deserts, also have high rates of addiction, also have high rates of violence, also have high rates of poverty. I mean, we kind of don't need the key to tell us that where you live, unfortunately, determines whether you live. And the paradox of health in Baltimore is that you could be a child born today, and depending on where you happen to grow up, it could be two neighborhoods just two miles apart. You could expect to live 20 years less than a child born in a neighborhood just a few miles away. And that, to me, is the paradox, because how can we have these amazing medical institutions that we are fortunate to take part of, but we still have this huge disparity? Access to health may be one of them, right? Access to care, insurance is one of them. Transportation is one of them. But it goes much deeper than that. And it's those social determinants that actually we also have to be addressing. And that's what troubled me so much in medical school that I couldn't quite pinpoint. But it's that. It's how do we as physicians, physicians in training, also get at those deeper issues? Because that's actually what is going to help our patients at the end of the day. Not just that inhaler, not just that steroid, not just that referral to care, but actually what is going to really change their lives. Now, some of this may seem overwhelming, which is the reason why I may, have, may or may not have you know, taken a lot of time off to figure out what this actually means. But as an emergency physician, I also know that if a patient comes into the ED to see me, it's never my option to say, oh, this patient has heart disease and cancer and was in a car accident and they also are unresponsive. It's not my problem. It's another service's job to do it. It's never an option to say, this issue is too complicated. It's always our job to say, what is it that I can do now to help this patient in front of me? So with that as the frame, I want to share three ideas with you. Three ideas, three things that I think we can all do today. You may not agree with them, and again, as AMSA folks, I know you're passionate leaders, I encourage you all to disagree and say why these things are not correct. But let me start, and you know, I can't see you all very well because of the bright light, so if you really hate it, throw, throw something at me and we'll, <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll talk. Three ideas. The first, is that we need to share our stories of success. Now, I start with this because when every time I open the news, and I'm sure many of you are in the same boat, it's terrifying. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm not here to make a political statement. I'm just saying what I, what I see, that there are many stories that are very negative, and actually many stories that make it look like America is falling apart. 
There are a lot of things wrong, to be sure, um, but there are a lot of things that are going right as well. Kelly mentioned, for example, one of our programs in Baltimore City called Be More for Healthy Babies. Back in 2009 in our city, we had one of the worst infant mortality rates in the country. I mean, our babies were dying at the same rate as babies dying in countries in the middle of civil war. 2009 in America. So what was going on? We discovered that it actually wasn't for lack of resources, although if anyone wants to give us resources in Baltimore, I'm not going to turn you down. <laughs> but the reason was that the efforts were not coordinated. You had hospitals, you had federally qualified health centers doing great health care work, you had all these different neighborhood associations and faith leaders doing crib deliveries and talking about breastfeeding, which is all great, but the fear was that what if 80% of all those services were directed at 20% of people, but not the right 20%, not necessarily those who are the most vulnerable? How are we actually reaching everyone who needs our help? And so a partnership was formed to be more for healthy babies that involved over time now over 150 public and private partners. And the goal was to say, let's compile our efforts. Let's aim towards a common North Star. Let's use collective impact principles. And as a result of, of this, we started universal triage for every pregnant woman in our city who is on Medicaid. We now triage them according to level of need. So someone may have many medical, psychiatric needs and then get a nurse home visitor for the duration of their pregnancy and after. Somebody else may get a social worker. Somebody else may get a community health worker. Somebody may have someone from the community come and teach them about the ABCs of safe sleep and breastfeeding practices. As a result of this citywide effort, we have reduced infant mortality across the city, as you heard, by 38%, which I want to illustrate to you what that means, because 38% sounds a little bit nebulous. That means that in 2016, we are saving 50 babies every year that would have died in 2009, which to me is pretty incredible. And it's not only that, it's also that we in Baltimore, and I hope that all of you in your cities well as well, we have specifically said that it's not enough for us to improve health. I mean, improving health is pretty important, and we certainly want to do that as a health entity. But we also specifically said we cannot address health without also addressing disparities. So infant, take infant mortality as an example. In 2009, an African-American baby born was five times more likely to die than a white baby in Baltimore City. I don't think any of us would find that statistic to be acceptable or just or just, I have trouble saying it because it's, it's so, it's not, it's just, it's not what we need. It's not what we would find acceptable in this time. So we have also closed that disparity between African-American and white infant mortality by over 50%. Still a long way to go. still a long way to go. But I think as we talk about the work that needs to be done, we also have to share the successes of what we have. You heard about our overdose work. Unfortunately, the number of people dying from overdose across the country continues to skyrocket, which I just have to point out too. If people were dying the same numbers of overdose, as they, or um, if they were dying of Ebola at the same rate that they were dying of overdose, they would be a national public health emergency like we've never seen. 
I mean, there are tens of thousands of people dying every year of overdose. Where is the attention and where is the funding for this? So there's a lot of, there are a lot of problems still. But in our city, as you heard, and I actually want to give you an updated number, since we issued the standing order, which means that I signed a prescription for every resident in our city. That's a little bit scary. Once you guys get your NPI, uh, your national provider ID numbers, and you're signing your name on 620,000 prescriptions, you can tell me how it feels then. It's scary. <laughs> but since we issued the blanket prescription, and my view has been that, look, if I can save someone's life and I can teach you right now how to save someone's life within 30 seconds by using this medication that's basically a nasal spray, then everyone should be able to save, their, save someone else's life. We've done over 20,000 trainings on street corners, in markets, in public housing, in bus shelters. Basically, we don't want them to come to us to get trainings. We're going to go to you, right? We go to where people are to get trainings. As a result of our trainings, our latest numbers are that everyday people, not necessarily paramedics or police, but everyday non-medical lay people have used naloxone to save over 800 lives just in the last two years in Baltimore City. So I hope that you too, wherever it is that you happen to be, whether you're telling the story of your work in your local AMSA chapter, whether you're telling the story of what's happening in your municipality, that you will also share these stories of success because we have to flip the narrative of here are all these problems of poverty in inner cities, and inner cities are decaying and falling apart, and there's this violence everywhere. I mean, I can say it in a different way, but you know, I'm, um, you know where this is coming from. <laughs> um, but it's our responsibility to flip that narrative, and instead to change that narrative and to tell the stories that we know. And don't just use data. I think we in medicine, we as scientists, are pretty good about using data. But stories compel action, while data provide context. Data are important, because you want that context. We are doctors and scientists, and we should set that context. But it's the stories that compel people to action. So share your stories of success, number one. Number two, don't just look at the cost of an intervention. Look at the cost of doing nothing. You know, there's a saying that Dr. Karen DeSalvo, the former Assistant Secretary of Health, likes to say that I quote a lot because it symbolizes my frustration in public health, which is that public health saved your life today, you just don't know it. I mean, I see this in my work all the time, that we people hear about what happens when there is a foodborne illness outbreak. And there's a picture of someone who was poisoned because of unclean food or unsanitary conditions. What's the picture of somebody who didn't get sick because of restaurant inspections that were done? Right? There's no face of that. There is the face of a child born with Zika virus and microcephaly due to that. What about the thousands, maybe even millions of children who did not have Zika and we're saved from it because of preventive efforts that are done. It's a much harder story to tell. It's a much harder case to make 
I don't think I need to convince any of the, any of you in this room that prevention is the best medicine, right? That we need to intervene as early as possible and prevent these things from happening. But it's a tough argument to make with our legislators. It's a tough argument to make. I mean, I'm we're in the middle of budget season right now. That I know I'm living through this right now. It's easier. I'm not saying that the police have an easy job, but it's easier when there is crime for the police to say, look, we need more patrol officers, right? We need people on the streets because we have to stop crime now. There is the face of someone who was the victim of crime. There is the face of that police was intervening. What about the face of someone who could have gotten shot, but didn't get shot because we provided those educational opportunities, because we intervened earlier with home visits, we prevented lead poisoning from happening earlier and gave this child a better life. Who, what is that face of that person? That's a story that we also have to tell better. You know, I'll give you two examples of how difficult this is. Zika is one of them. The estimates are that one child born with microcephaly will cost society $10 million in medical costs, educational costs, and lost economic opportunity. $10 million is a lot of money over that person's lifetime. Not to mention, by the way, I mean, this is only the fiscal argument. There's the, also the humane argument of how are we doing this to, and why are we not stopping something that could have such a huge impact on our children and for generations to come? Forget that argument. I mean, I think all of us agree with that already. But even the fiscal argument alone, $10 million per child who was born with Zika. And yet it took Congress over 230 days to approve funding for Zika, 230 days. Because what they were looking at is the price tag of the intervention, not the price tag of doing nothing. How many kids would it take, born with Zika, to already overwhelm the medical system? That's the argument that we all have to make as well. Understanding that the health as a human rights approach obviously is something that appeals to some people, appeals to all of us. Other people may need that fiscal, argument as well, but I strongly believe that a commitment to public health is also a commitment to fiscal responsibility. And we have to also make that argument as well. Related to all of this too is that, you know, all of you in your advocacy day, I think are showing us that health is actually tied to everything, right? We don't, people may ask, why is it that you're talking about immigrant rights and DACA? Well, it is for very obvious reasons to us, but we are the ones who have to make that connection for others. So around election time, in the local elections, in the state election, there are going to be those who say, well, health is not one of my top items. Certainly not these other social determinants of health. I don't even know what, what, what that is. But what I care about, I care about jobs. I care about public safety. I care about education. Those three things tend to come up all the time. We are the ones who have to make the argument for if you want jobs, you should also worry about untreated addiction and mental health. If you want public safety, maybe we should be concerned about the fact that half of the people in our criminal justice system actually have an untreated mental illness or addiction. I mean, I'm focusing on this issue, but you can use any other health issue in there as well. If we care about education, maybe we should be looking at how hungry kids who don't have food are going to be paying attention. If kids don't have glasses, really, I don't need another study to tell me that if kids don't have glasses, they can't see and therefore can't read. So how can we make that tie for everyone else? That's the argument that we need to make, not just looking at the cost of a program, but the cost of doing nothing.
All right, my third idea, third thing that I hope we'll keep in mind too. And this one is probably the most controversial. Nobody's thrown anything yet, but I expect things to start flying. My third idea is that we need to call out the problems that we see. And in so doing, being honest about the problems that we may be, however inadvertently, causing ourselves. A couple of examples. We had the civil unrest in Baltimore in April of 2015, following the, the death of an unarmed African-American man, Freddie Gray, while in police custody. I think you all remember the images that were displayed. Again, an, another example of how the media doesn't always portray the positive side. I'm not saying that that's fake news that they were portraying. I'm just saying that it wasn't positive news. Um, we saw the pictures of burning cars and people throwing bricks and everything else. But what the media didn't portray in that time was how there were over a dozen of our pharmacies that were burned down or looted or closed. And as a result, we in the health department had to figure out how are we going to get medications to people who, didn't, who couldn't get access to them? I mean, I can call in to a Walgreens and change my prescription from a CVS to a Walgreens. I have a car, but what about an 80-year-old who is in a wheelchair, dependent on oxygen, who who relies on public transportation and is looking at the news and thinking that the world is burning down, right? I mean, it's not so easy. So what we ended up doing was we set up a prescription access and food access line so that anyone who needed prescriptions or food, because people also depended on their corner stores or their pharmacies for food, and those were closed, so where are you going to go? We set up this, this hotline and a system to deliver food and medications to people, which we were very proud of. I mean, this is really, you know, we weren't prepared to set it up, but we figured it out because that's what people need. And then we went door to door. We had staff and volunteers go door to door to let people know about these programs. We went door to door. This is two days after the unrest. And think about the time in April of 2015, not 2016. April of 2015, we knocked on doors two days after the unrest. First question that we got from our residents was, what candidate is this for? Now, I'm all for people running for office, and to Dr. Stoll's point, I hope that more of you will get involved and be involved in public service. I think that's great. So this is not an anti-political candidate statement. I'm just saying that two days after the unrest, a year and a half before the election, the first question that people thought was, what candidate is this for? Second question that we got, what study is this? Because I filled out a survey last week. Now, our residents weren't trying to be ungrateful or sarcastic. They were stating very clearly to me what they saw and what they thought about us. Whatever that us is, they don't, I don't know that they knew, whether it's government, whether it's people from the outside trying to come and do work, I don't know what that us is. But whatever that us is, the message came through that they always saw us as being there for our own needs and not for their needs. And that message for us was hard to hear because we think of us, ourselves as the health department going to meet people where they are, delivering services that we heard people say they need. But we have to be honest and say that's the perception. That's the understanding. So how do we start from that understanding? Another example as well. I've spoken a lot about addiction and the need for, for treating 
overdose as a public health emergency. And again, I was very proud to have gotten lots of legislative efforts that led to the standing order that got all these doses of naloxone onto the streets. I was very proud of that and saving lives. But I remember being in a predominantly African-American church talking about this. And people were polite and they wanted to learn how to save lives, but then someone raised their hands. And this older gentleman stood up and said, I would like to know, why is it that addiction is suddenly a public health emergency? I would like to know, is it because there are now white people in suburban and rural areas who are wealthy that are dying, that it's suddenly a public health emergency? And you know what? He was right. In Baltimore, just like in many other cities across the country, there have been people dying of overdose, I mean, people die of HIV, of hepatitis, and the crack epidemic, from heroin epidemic for decades. I think we need to be, in order for us to now address this issue, we need to be honest with ourselves and say, it used to be that when you are a minority, when you are poor and you have an addiction, it's a moral failing. And so if you end up in jail or you end up dead, somehow it's a bad choice that you made that got you there and therefore it's your problem. But if you're white, if you're wealthy, and somehow you have an addiction, it's a medical illness, and you can check yourself into a clinic and get treated. It's hard to say these words, because I'm sure all of us like to think of ourselves as we don't think that way. But how did we get here? And what is it that we need to do to change that perception and our societal understanding going forward? It's hard. It was hard for me to hear this because I wasn't in Baltimore at the time who, you know, I, I wasn't trying to say that it's now suddenly a public health emergency because white people are dying. But understanding that perspective and being honest that, look, hey, we are happy that addiction is finally getting some recognition. But we need to be honest about what got us to where we are. And we have to be honest and say that poverty is a public health issue. Violence is a public health issue and racism is a public health issue. You know, none of what I'm saying now is easy. And I hope that what I've said so far makes you at least a little bit uncomfortable because there is so much that we do that may get us into trouble. Sometimes what you say may go against the grain. Sometimes what you say isn't going to be popular with your classmates. May, it may not be popular with your family. You may face consequences and you may get into trouble. But we look at, so one of, my, um, one of my heroes is Congressman Elijah Cummings from my local area in Baltimore. And he talks about our obligation as not only to ourselves and our families and our children, but he talks about our obligation to the generations of children yet unborn. That they are messengers to a future that we will never see. What are we going to be doing for those children? And I would argue that these generations of children in the future, they depend on us to do these things that are hard, but really are the right things to do. Congressman John Lewis, one of our civil rights icons in this country, who we all admire, 
Congressman John Lewis talks about how there is bad trouble and good trouble. And good trouble is when we stand up to injustice. And so I know I told you that they, I had three points. I feel like I'm breaking every rule in the speaker's handbook. I'm gonna give you a fourth point. <laughs> and this fourth point is a practical one about what can we do about these other three things, right? How can we share these stories? How are we going to talk about the cost of doing nothing? How are we gonna call out problems that we see? And the fourth is that we need to advocate in every way that we can. And what I mean is when you're in the clinic, when you're seeing patients, it doesn't matter if you're a first-year medical student, you're a third-year medical student, you're an intern, you're a resident, you need to ask the questions. Even if they're questions that other people don't wanna be asking, even if you feel like you're opening Pandora's box and you don't know what else is going to come out of it, I see it as our ultimate duty to also attend to that bigger picture. We can't just be satisfied with treating the one singular disease that this patient came in with without attending to that bigger picture because we're not really doing our jobs. Ask those questions. Don't be afraid to tackle those social determinants of health. It's not going to be easy, and sometimes you're going to feel frustrated because you're going to think, I don't have the tools to do my work. I mean, that's why I took on this job, because I got frustrated in my clinical work and said, how can I now address these issues from a, a systemic approach? If I can't do it as a doctor in my clinic, in the ER, how can I do this now as a doctor for my city? There are other things that you can do, but don't be afraid just because it's going to be hard. Don't be afraid to tackle these social determinants and really talk about racism, talk about violence, talk about these third rail topics that other people may not want you to, but you know are important to do. And remember that ultimately our job is to preserve the dignity and respect and humanity of all people. Of all people, it doesn't matter if there's someone experiencing homelessness. It doesn't matter if they have a substance addiction. It doesn't matter if they have mental illness. It doesn't matter if they are someone that society otherwise casts aside. And actually, I would argue that we have an additional responsibility to those individuals because that's why we are here, to provide care and to improve the health of everyone. And I strongly believe that we also all have a choice. And so this is the choice that I pose to you as I end. I think we have a choice. Y'all of you have a choice to stand on the sidelines or get off the sidelines. I think we can, I think you, I know which one you will choose. Um, I think that we have a choice to be angry and mutter to our friends and post Facebook messages to people who we know think exactly like us. Or we can write an op-ed, we can write a letter to the editor, we can call our member, our, our elected representative, especially representatives who may not agree with us on that particular topic. We can choose to be frustrated at what's happening and talk about how terrible it's going to be for the next however many years. Again, not trying to be political here, but you can count the number of years. Or we can organize, we can rally, we can agitate, because it's not just about our lives, it's about our patients' lives, it's about the lives of those who are yet unborn, who depend on us for health, who depend on us also for our environment. By the way, I do think that environmental justice is one of the key social justice issues of our time. There's going to be no world and no health. Now, I think I know which issues and which way you're going to be choosing.
The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said that inequalities in healthcare are the most shocking and most inhumane. Now, unfortunately, those words are as true today as they were before. We're facing many different challenges in our life, many different challenges for our patients and our communities. But I think that's why now more than ever, we need to be brave. We need to lift up what's working. We need to talk about the successes as well as speak out about the cost of inaction. We have to call out the problems that we see. We must stand up also to injustice and we must lead with urgency, compassion, and action. And so AMSA members, AMSA leaders, I pledge to join with you, to march with you, to fight with you, and stand with you every step of this way. Thank you very much. AMSA Adlib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Joey Johnson is AMSA's national president. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening.